You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And so this is episode three. We've got some things coming up. Uh, you know, what we're uh, driving, what Tesla owners understand about autopilot, uh, Mazda CX-5's getting a diesel, a Jaguar I-Pace because of uh, LA. And then you have the interview with that guy from Chariot, whose name, we, we were just talking Ali, about this. Ali day He's the uh, CEO of Chariot, uh, which is a San Francisco-based company that was purchased by Ford, uh, Ford's Smart Mobility uh, division about a little more than a month ago. And I had a chance to sit down with Ali uh, at the Los Angeles Auto Show. And I think you'll enjoy the uh, interview. So that's all coming up. We'll get to it. First thing we're going to do is the garage and so sam what are you driving uh i've been actually been also driving a mazda 3 hatchback um for uh, about a month and a half now um part of a, a longer term loan that uh, mazda uh, is doing with some analysts <clears throat> and uh the mazda you know i think of all the current mainstream brands i think you know mazda's car lineup is generally the one one of the ones i like the best um you know the the three in particular among compact cars is just a fantastic car uh in so many ways i mean I, <clears throat> excuse me i love the mazda's current kodo design language uh you know what they've done with that it's it's a it's definitely a more grown-up look than you know their previous generation uh designs of uh the latter part of the last decade you know that seemed to always seem to have a giant smiley face i was gonna say the super happy face yeah <laughs> uh, you know this one is you know it's a more sophisticated look uh you know and and one of the things that you know i like about it in particular is how they've moved the a pillars back you know and even though these are front-wheel drive vehicles, they have the proportions of a rear-drive vehicle when you look at them in profile. Um, you know, it just gives it a more sporty look that's that's really in keeping with with Mazda's kind of overall theme of driving matters. Um, and just you know, the the sophistication of this car is really impressive. Um, you know, the interior is really well executed. It's not it's not super fancy, uh, but you know, it doesn't. It, it just looks really good, very clean, uncluttered. 
Um, and I also like the fact that uh, Mazda, on all their current generation vehicles, uses a central control knob down on the on the center console uh, for navigating around the infotainment system, um, which personally I find is my preferred method for um, navigating those systems uh, when I'm driving. I can get around a lot quicker and with a lot more precision than I can on a touchscreen. Although the, the 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 screen in the in the three is actually a touchscreen as well, so you can do it either way. But it's a little bit longer reach because it's up on top of the dash, so it's closer to your uh, line of sight when you're driving. So you don't have to look down as much to to see the nav screen and things like that. But it's just a it's just a really well executed car. It drives really well. Um, and I've, in the past, I've driven the uh, the manual transmission uh, versions of both the two liter and the and the two point five liter engines. And this one, this particular one, is a two point five liter automatic. Um, you know, it's just got such a great balance of ride, um, you know, ride, supple ride as, and, and great, um, driving dynamics. Yeah. So why do you think that the three kind of has this problem of like catching on everybody? I mean, I love it. Everybody who, who drives it tends to, to really like it. And yet it's like some tiny fraction of market share. I wish I knew, you know, I think. I think the key is just to get people to actually try them out, you know, to to get them to pay attention. It's like, hey, Mazda still exists, and they're making some really great cars. You know, the the six is a fabulous midsize sedan. Uh, the three, you know, is one of the best compacts out there. I, you know, I'd put it right up there. You know, the three and the the new Civic hatch are probably the the class of the field right now. Um, the cruise, the Chevy Cruze is really good as well. Um, I mean, there's not really any bad cars in the segment anymore, uh, but you know, I, I just something about the three really appeals to me. Yeah, and you said it's a hatch, right? This one's a hatch. This one's a hatch. You can also get it as a four-door sedan, but frankly, you know, I just don't understand why anybody buys compact sedans. You know, uh, if you if you're gonna have a compact. Get the get the hatchback so you've got that extra flexibility. You know when you find something cooler in a, you know as you're driving around at yard sales or or you know if you want to go camping or whatever. You know you can pop the back seat down. You've got a big uh, big cargo area back there. Um, you know regardless of what brand you buy. You know I, I just prefer hatchbacks for smaller cars. Oh, and they're just they're so much more flexible in in your you're fitting your lifestyle. You know they're they're. It's kind of the reason why crossovers are so popular, I think, you know, that they take that same kind of utility and they're a little larger and they're, they're a slightly different image. But overall, the general utility is, is there, you know, it's a, it's a tiny little hatchback or a tiny little station wagon. Yeah, I mean, um, and that's I mean, that's what um, crossover, you know, really modern crossovers that are based on front wheel drive platforms like this, like the, the CX-5 or the CX-3 really you know are not little more than you know the hatchback version of the car platform they share just sitting you know with a higher ride height you know and sometimes and usually you know um all-wheel drive is an option which often is not an option on the car version so what um what trim level does this uh, three have is it like the premium one that's got all the the fanciness or is it yeah, sort of the middle of the, the road this is the 3s grand touring uh, oh, yeah. nice! Uh, so, you know, it's got <laughs> the leather seating and the um, 
the navigation and uh, basically everything. Uh, and this one's you know about twenty six and a half grand, which is you know it's not cheap, but it's not you know it's it's still fairly affordable. And that's a pretty great deal for something that oh you know it, it certainly is. I mean compared to anything else in the segment, you know comparably equipped, it's it's you know competitively priced. And you know since since it is a Mazda, and as you said, you know. They don't seem to. People don't seem to be, you know, clamoring for them. You can actually get some pretty good deals on them. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's definitely something that everybody should be taking a look at as an alternative to whatever else is out there. And especially if you're, you know, if like many people, you're not fond of uh, CVTs, continuously variable transmissions. Honda, or sorry, Mazda is continuing to use um, six-speed. Uh, torque converter automatics, conventional, traditional automatics, but just very efficient. And that's the other thing about uh, Mazda's cars is they are very fuel efficient. Well, that was, was what I was, was going to ask is what you're getting for fuel economy with it. Uh, we're doing about 32, 33 miles per, per gallon combined. And that's with the, the 2.5, so that's like 180-something horsepower. Yeah, which is, yeah. The, you know. the, uh, if you go with the 2-liter, uh, you can get uh, 2 or 3 miles per gallon more. Um, you know, you lose a little bit of performance. It's still, it's still not bad at all. It's, it's about 155 horsepower with the two liter. That's kind uh, of plenty. Engines, yeah. Both, both engines are direct injected. Um, you know, so it's, they're, they're just fun to drive. They just, I mean, they, they have great steering feel just everything about it. If you, if you actually enjoy driving and, you know, you have some curves in between where you are and wherever you need to be, you know, it's going to, you're going to have a hard time having more fun you know, in a mainstream car than you will in a Mazda, you know, to, to, ha- to have something that drives better than this, you know, you've got to step up to the performance versions of, of, you know, competitive cars like, you know, VW GTI or Focus ST, um, yeah. or Civic SI. Yeah. Well, and even the automatic was one of the things that I found actually really surprising about the three, um, Mazda does the automatic a little different, than uh, other manufacturers with their Skyactiv sort of ethos, they they really lo- it has a larger lockup clutch in it, and so it's it's locked up, you know, physically connected to the wheels, much more often than some other torque converter automatics. So it feels really really solid and responsive, and it that's one of the things that helps it get a lot more efficiency. Um, and it's surprising how good an automatic equipped car is to drive to the point where I might. I might suggest the auto over the the manual. I haven't driven either in in a while, but the last uh, last few manual transmission cars I've driven that have been just like straight up, you know, normal commuter cars. They've they've done a lot of like fiddling with the throttle for me, as if like, hey, we we know you don't really know how to drive one of these, so we're gonna put it in the software, and that like I wound up fighting the car, and that's really aggravating. Well, the 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 Mazda uh, the Mazda three manual, um, you know, it's a very slick shifting manual transmission, and they don't really seem to do anything fancy like that with the throttle. It's just you know, it just does what you expect it to do. Yeah. Um, you know, which you know, as a driver, that's what you want. Yeah, that and like clutch delay valves and stuff. Like, there's there's stuff out there to apparently save us from ourselves, which yeah, I, I kind of don't need. And with the smaller engine too, the uh, the two liter with the auto, like that's that's a pretty good combo mm-hmm. um you know you get the torque multiplication off the line you get the extra miles per gallon on the highway you know, it's a really good car and i feel like for me comparing it to the golf you know the mazda seems a little bit more elemental a little bit less 
isolated, I guess, than the golf. And the, the golf is sort of my benchmark for that class because it's just it's an overall refined, very good car. Um, and the focus is, is pretty good as well. But the, the golf is really still in my mind like the class of the field. But, you know, the, the Mazda is right there in terms of being fun to drive. It just it feels, you know, different in a way that's still good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you got yeah, I was gonna say so we're we're sticking with the basically the the compact class. I have a uh, Beetle Dune Volkswagen Beetle Dune, um, which is you know basically false promises. <laughs> um, you mean it but looks it's like, it looks like something that should be a Dune buggy, but um, maybe it doesn't quite live up to that. Yeah, I mean it looks great. I love the way it looks. Uh, this one is the 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 three colors that are offered is this this RNG color that I've got. Uh, I think red, uh, white, and um, uh, silver or something. Uh, this is the nicest looking of the Beetle Dunes, uh, just because it has a you know a color that stands out. It's got a nice little fin spoiler on the back, and you know stripe package. The ride height is up a little bit, and it's got its own bumpers and moldings. So you know it it it's handsome. Uh, <laughs> it, it looks like it should perform, you know, like a little mini nine eleven or something, which it. It doesn't. Um, it performs like a Golf with the 1.8T, which is plenty fine. Um, this one has the automatic, so it's a it's a decent car. And I think all the Beetle Dunes are actually automatic only. Yeah, I um, think you're right. I think that's the only one they offer. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's a decent value if you want something that's a little bit uh, uh, sort of cheeky, you know, a little bit uh, distinctive. You know, like a, it's larger than a Fiat 500. It's not as overdone as a Mini, uh, so it certainly has a place. Um, but of course you could just get a golf and in doing that, you'd get a manual, um, you'd get more utility. If you got a GTI, uh, if style is still your thing, uh, you'd get much better performance. Um, and you know, it's only a few more, more bucks a month when you, when you price this out, um, the Beetle Dune winds up at about 24,000. Uh, you can stretch to that 26, 27 of a GTI a base GTI and, and get there pretty easily. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Volkswagen dealers are looking to deal. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a triumph of, uh, you know, sort of styling and packaging and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I guess like I, I kind of, I didn't know, I didn't know exactly how to feel about it. Um, because on its surface, it, it is all, it's just an appearance package. But there's nothing really wrong with that either, I guess, because that's sort of why we have so many different cars. So it's it's another choice, and it's it's not. It doesn't really offer you any more substance than you can get in in a regular Beetle, but it offers it in a slightly different package. So I, I don't know. Maybe talk me off the ledge that I'm, I'm I shouldn't be negative about that. I should just celebrate the choice. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> there's nothing wrong with having some choice. Um, you know. And it, it, depending on what your lifestyle is, you know, if you don't have young kids, you know, if you don't have kids that you have to try and, you know, get into the back seat, a car like this is perfectly fine. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it. I mean, if you like the style, go for it. You know, I mean, I think the, the name and kind of what they've done with the, the design kind of implies that this thing has some off-road capabilities that it clearly doesn't. Yes, um, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, aside from that, but, you know, even, you know, so-called crossovers, you know, mo- most utility vehicles, you know, don't have real off-road capabilities anyway. And those look even more, you know, they're even more jacked up. So, you know, it's, 
if you like the look of this thing, go for it. I'm not, you know, there's no, re, you know, no reason, no reason for us to stop you. Uh, yeah. Except if it fits your lifestyle, there's, there's nothing wrong with, you know, going for a particular look that appeals to you. Um, you know, if you like this better than a, than a golf or a Jetta, um, you know, or, or anything else in the class, go for it. Yeah, I mean it's certainly pleasant to drive. You know, dynamically it's it's pretty good because it's a you know it's a yeah. Volkswagen small car. Yeah, I mean it's a, yeah. it's a it's a VW, which I mean for for all of the issues that we've had with VW over the years with reliability and and emissions and so on, you know the one thing that they have consistently gotten right is the driving dynamics. You know, um, for, yeah. for many many years, and you know I mean that's the reason why you know we're on our second one in the last. You know the last dozen years, um, at least for now, anyway. So, you know, it's it's the way it drives. So, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, and it's you know finally has USB in it too. I think this is the first year yes. that uh, yeah. Volkswagen has actually put the ports in. Yeah, the 2016 models. Uh, they finally switched over from having a a proprietary port that you'd have to get an adapter cable from the VW dealer to plug in either um, an Apple Lightning connector or a USB connector. Um, now, now they've got standard USB ports built into the car. And does this one have the Android Auto and uh, Apple CarPlay support? Um, I'm pretty sure it does. Uh, my phone doesn't support Android Auto, oh, okay. which I'm I'm a little annoyed by. Um, but yes, I'm I'm pretty sure it does. It has the the fancy head unit, the okay. MD whatever, um, which is you know it's decent. It's not. It's not the class of you know the the field. It's not not as easy to use as the Mazda system, for instance. But uh, Volkswagens come quite a ways with their infotainment. Uh, the screen's still a little bit um, small, and it has a nice feature where you can set it to shut off after ten seconds. So like for night driving, because I did find that I couldn't get the instruments dark enough, I couldn't get the screen dark enough. So this ten second timeout actually shuts the screen off um, until you need it. But it still leaves that little bit of illumination because it's an LCD. And so depending on how you do the LCDs, you know, they, they you have get a little, little bit of bit light of, yeah. through. Yeah. Yeah. And my Jeep is the same way. If I shut the screen off, it's still sort of like very dimly gray there. And so it still catches your, your eye a little bit. So, uh, does, you know, those, those are, does it switch to like a, a dark theme at nighttime or is it? Yes. OK. Uh, mm, yeah. You know what? I don't. No, off the top of my head. I generally so I'm I'm very persnickety about this stuff. Uh I will get in the car and I will actually switch them even in the daytime. I'll generally force them into night mode and dim them as much as possible. Dan Roth persnickety? I Yeah, I know. I mean <laughs> it's hard to believe. Yeah, I mean that, um, that is one thing about like for example, uh Apple CarPlay, you know, they they only ha- they don't have they don't have a distinguishing uh day or night uh, theme. It's just always fairly dark. It's a, it's a predominantly black theme. Um, and then uh, Android Auto, uh, it will switch, you know, based on the, the uh, headlight position or, you know, whatever. Um, it'll switch to a night theme, uh, which is a, a darker theme, you know, so instead of a lot of bright whites, uh, you have dark grays instead. So, I mean, I, I feel like this is, that's sort of the way that, that automakers kind of should be going is the Android Auto Apple CarPlay route. And I say that because I, I just did a run. Yesterday, I, I actually took the Crown Vic because I had to pick up some, some relatives from the airport and I didn't want to shove them into the Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that car, it's got its original head unit. It has a tape deck. Uh, so I, I wanted the, the nav system. So I just, you know, I had my phone. I just sort of rested it there on the, uh, the ashtray because um, the car has an ashtray still. <laughs> 
but it it has all the functions of an infotainment system, and it's in my phone, and it it worked fine. It has I mean, it's the display's not as big as like the eight inch screen you get in some cars, but automakers, you know, you can offer that functionality without developing the system on your own. You, I'm sure you lose some of the robustness in terms of like, uh, you know, how often it may crash or, or something like that, um, and and some of the sensors for dead reckoning. But why why spend the money to to develop a system, especially for a car that's going to sell in the twenty thousand dollar range? You know, between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars, like that's that's a lot of money to develop. An, an infotainment system when you everybody has one already. Well, that's a that's a topic that uh, I think you know I've got a lot of things to say about that, and I've, I've spoken <laughs> at length about that. But yeah, I think we should probably come, maybe come back to that one next week. Uh, okay. Talk about infotainment <laughs> systems in general because we've got a lot of other hit areas to cover tonight. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's put that one down on the list for next week to talk about uh, because I there there are some there are some things about that that I've I've written about it and and talked about it in the past and I've got more stuff to say on that topic. All right. Well, we'll tee that up for uh, next week. And before we get to our our main topics, um, people have asked me, and I, my answer is no. But have have you watched the Grand Tour? I did watch the first episode the other night. I did. Okay, so is it worth watching? Um, if you liked uh, Top Gear with uh, May Clarkson and Hammond, um, you will enjoy this. I mean, it's it's basically Top Gear, you know, re, you know, with um, new stings and you know new uh, new new names for the various segments. But you know, it's basically what you would expect. You know, there, okay, so there's nothing there's nothing dramatically different. If you were a Top Gear fan uh, prior to the most recent season that uh, that aired, um, you will enjoy this. All right, because I was on the fence about whether I should bother or not. Sounds like I'll, I'll check it out. Um, all right, and as always, there, you know, there's lots of great cinematography, and you know, it's up to you whether you you like the uh, the banter between those three. Um, you know, it was it was enjoyable. All right, so you're going to watch episode two then? Is basically what you're saying? Sure, why not? I've got. <laughs> yeah. I'm paying for Amazon Prime anyway. I might as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, and you were out at LA, and we've got a couple of other hits from that uh, as well. But the uh, the Chevrolet Bolt was Green Car of the Year. Um, seems like it was a very thin field for Green Car of the Year, and I know that's one of the beats that you kind of watch is the the Green Car stuff. So, like, where where do you come down on that? Is it sort of like, well, that was the default choice or a solid choice overall? I mean, both. I mean, it was it was pretty much the default choice this year. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to pick anything else over the Bolt this year. Um, as the the top green car, and you know, generally as as one of the most significant cars of the year period, which is also why Motor Trend picked it as their car of the year. Uh, and I think you know, we'll, over the next month or two, we'll be seeing the Bolt collecting a whole bunch of awards from various publications and outlets. Uh, it was also named one of the three finalists for North American Car of the Year. Um, you know, uh, I think. Uh, Car and Driver, did they put out their 10 best yet? Uh, 10 best has been announced, but I don't think the issue is out yet. Okay, but uh, you know, it, it'll it'll be popping up everywhere. It'll have a, a you know a big shelf full of awards, um, and now it's just a question of GM actually delivering the cars to customers and and seeing the how the customers take to it and and whether whether they start flocking to this thing because I from I have yet to actually get behind the wheel of a bolt I've sat in one at the auto show a couple of times it's it's a remarkably roomy car for its footprint size um, you know and I think you know from everything I've heard from everyone who's actually driven it so far it's 
um, you know, it drives really well. You know, it's surprising. It feels surprisingly quick. Uh, it handles really well as, you know, most cars, you know, with a thousand pounds of battery in the floor pan will tend to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's got all that utility because it's, you know, because it's a, a tall hatch. Uh, you've got a lot of cargo space in the back, even with the back seat up. Uh, you, it's still got, uh, I think, 17 cubic feet of cargo space behind the back seat. Uh, and then when you fold the back seat down, it, it, that jumps to close to 50 cubic feet. Uh, that's so, pretty good for yeah, something that so, small. I mean, it's, yeah. it's got you know tremendous utility that you're not going to get out of a certain other thirty-five thousand uh, dollar EV next year or, <laughs> or someday. Uh, right, if it ever arrives next yeah. year. I mean, that's the thing. Like GM, first of all, GM knows it can't screw it up. Right. Uh, and GM's not going to screw it up because they they have the resources. They have other profitable vehicle lines, so they can. They can sort of take a, a little bit of a loss here and there. They can they can move some money around, and they're not going to lose their shirts on a single product like this. Um, so, and I feel like GM's people are really really good. You know, their their ride and handling of pretty much everything they make has gotten so good in the last five to seven years. You know, the fundamental car is 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 there, and uh, I, I think this is going to be big for EVs. You know, it's it's affordable. It's the right size. It's you know, from a manufacturer that's that's everywhere. There's no you know hoops to jump through to actually buy one in your state. That yeah, kind of stuff. So you know, uh, the, I guess initial deliveries are are being focused on dealers in California and Oregon over the next couple of months. Uh, but you know, they will you know early in 2017 they'll be expanding it uh, uh, throughout the 50 states and and uh, elsewhere. And so you'll be able to go to any dealer and order one and pick it up and take it there for service. You know, so unlike Tesla, you know, which only has stores in about half of the states, um, you will be able to pick it up and get it serviced anywhere and get it serviced as quickly as, as any other GM vehicle. Uh, and that's, you know, again, that, that's something we can come back to <clears throat> as far as uh, Tesla and there's been you know increasing complaints from custom, from existing customers even with much lower volumes of long wait times for service you know waiting a couple of weeks to get you know fairly basic things serviced uh and this that should not be a problem with the the bolt you'll be able to get it serviced any anywhere yeah well tesla's gonna you know, i mean i i wish them the best i'm actually really rooting for them i think that they've done a lot of great things to change up the the automotive world uh, they're they're learning the hard lessons of scaling an automaker, though. Oh yeah, um, and you know, I mean, with without Tesla, the Bolt would probably would not exist. Absolutely true. Um, yeah. And and neither would uh, you know another of the cars that uh, that I saw in L.A. that uh, the world saw for the first time, the Jaguar I-Pace. Exactly. Well, let's you know what? Let's talk about the I-Pace. Let's pivot. Uh, <laughs> so, because for me, like, I'm uh, that's another car that I'm not quite sure what to think. Like. It's an electric SUV from Jaguar. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's Jaguar's. It'll be Jaguar's second SUV. Um, and despite the name, uh, with the the pace and the name, it actually uh, shares nothing with the current F Pace. Uh, this is a completely different platform. Uh, everything about it. This is this is a dedicated electric vehicle platform. And Jaguar has also said this week that uh, by 2020, half of all their half of their model lineup will be available in pure electric models. So most likely we can expect to see the new XJ, uh, which is probably coming next year, available as an all electric version, um, and then uh, probably the uh, the X or the either the XF or XE following that uh, within the next couple of years. Uh, but 
<clears throat> yeah, this this is you know it. In many ways, it's very similar to uh, what Tesla has done in terms of the basic architecture. Um, and in fact, the the basic concept of the architecture, you know, goes back to stuff that was done uh, at GM back you know early in the two thousand in the early two thousands with their um, autonomy concept. A little uh, skateboard. Skateboard plot. The skateboard concept. Yeah. So all of the batteries are located, um, you know, in a in a pack mounted in the in the floor pan so it's a structural part of the car um, and then electric motors at the front and rear axles uh, for all-wheel drive uh, 200 horsepower motors at each end uh, so it's not quite as powerful as a model x but um, frankly to my eye and to the eyes of pretty much everyone i talked to out in la this week um, it's definitely a more attractive car than the uh, model x um, doesn't have falcon wing doors which i've that's probably a good you know, thing. Yeah, it's, it's not not a great loss, I think. Um, and uh, you know, it won't be a seven seater, at least not you know as it's configured right now. It's only a five seater. Uh, but you know, again, the the third row in the Model X is you know not particularly roomy anyway. Uh, so it's you know it's really more of a seven seater in name only. Um, the um, battery pack uh, in the concept is a ninety kilowatt hour battery pack, and they're claiming. Or they're they're targeting um, more than 300 or yeah a 500 kilometer range on the the European drive cycle. Right, so it's like 300 uh, ish miles, right? Yeah, about 300 miles. Uh, and on the EPA cycle, which tends to be more closer to being realistic than the the European cycle, um, that will uh, they're projecting more than 220 um, from the conversations I had. You know, it'll probably be somewhere in the range of 250 miles of range. So we're we're getting there. Um, the other thing that, well, I guess back up to platform wise, is it based on like the because the, the XE shares a lot of platform stuff with the um, the the F Pace, uh, which also shares some platform stuff with the uh, the F Type. You know that's that's smart. Um, is this an all-new platform, or are they taking bits and pieces? And they they say it's an all-new platform. I'm sure that there are some common pieces, like you know, things like steering gears, you know, are probably shared with the other cars. Um, you know, maybe some of the suspension bits, but effectively, this is an all-new platform. You know, it doesn't share a floor pan with any other Jaguar. Uh, you know, just because of the nature of its structure. You know, the bottom yeah. the bottom of the car is this battery pack, uh, this big giant flat battery pack so it really doesn't share anything and you know when you look at it you know you you can see the design cues uh you know the the face of jaguar you know of a modern jaguar uh but the proportions are actually quite different from uh from any other jaguar that's that's out there today um you know particularly the f pace you know it's it's a shorter hood you know they, they've stretched out the um passenger compartment to the to the limits you know because you don't have an engine up front uh so they've maximized the passenger volume for the size of the vehicle um but you know it's taller like an f pace so it's it's a it's an interesting look i think i think it's a good looking vehicle uh, you know it, it looks very you know sporting it, it looks like it should be a jaguar yeah well and you know honestly i think they're very smart to skip hybrids altogether because yeah. You know they don't they don't drive as well as a pure electric. Pure electrics are, are generally great to drive. Well, they're they're not skipping hybrids altogether. I mean they've got some hybrids in Land Rovers in Europe right now, and and those will also be coming over um, in the next couple of years. So we'll we'll see we'll probably see some hybrid uh, models from 
uh, JLR over the next few years as part of the overall strategy. But I think certainly for the Jaguar brand, they seem to be focusing more on the pure battery electric. Yeah, and the the thing that the other thing that stuck out to me was their their claims kind of about about charging. You know, it's got a roughly three hundred mile range, like we talked about, and then they're they're talking about you know fifty kilowatt DC charging. Um, and that's, that's a point, like, I'm not sure everybody understands quite what that means. Like, you know, electricity is still kind of an enigma. Charging it at that level of power will, will get you a battery, uh, you know, full battery in two hours. And, you know, but maybe you can explain like what that kind of charger is like, that's, that's not what you're going to have at home. No, not at all. Um, so what you get at home, you know, you've got two types of charging you can have at home. They're both AC charging, alternating current. So you can have one 10 volt charging. So you just plug it into a standard outlet. And you know that's usually uh, about one and a half kilowatts or so uh, of power. You know, so kilowatts is, is how, you, how we measure electrical power. Uh, so it's basically telling you how, how fast you're getting electrons into the battery. Um, so a one 10 volt charger is the slowest. Um, you know, and in, a, in an emergency, you know, in a pinch, if you're you know, visiting somewhere and you're running low and you need to, to get a little bit of extra juice in there, you know, you can do that. Um, most home chargers that people who buy EVs are, are what are known as, and, and those 110 chargers are, are what are called level one chargers. Then you have level two chargers, which are 220 to 240 volt chargers. And the home chargers are usually uh, either 6.6 or 7.2 kilowatts. Um, they're starting to come out with some that are closer to 10 kilowatts. So those charge significantly faster. Um, and then what this is, this is DC charging. So this is similar to um, the, de- the Tesla superchargers, which are also yep. DC chargers. And so these, um, you know, you're doing the um, conversion uh, outside uh, outside the vehicle. You know, so the, the, the energy, the, the electricity that's running through the grid is AC, alternating current, and batteries use DC, uh, direct current. They don't, you know, so in the vehicle, we use AC motors, and there's an inverter that converts the DC from the battery into right. AC for the motor because that's more efficient. Um, and But you can charge the battery a lot faster if you pump DC into it instead of having to go through an onboard AC to DC converter. Right, and so the thing is, too, like, 50 kilowatts like that's that's uh uh that's the full power of an fm station is allowed to have like that, yeah. that is a, do some ohm's law that is a lot of power that's, that's and a lot of power uh you know, actually play, tesla superchargers are even more powerful than that most of them are 100 kilowatts well that's what i was gonna say actually I, I made a mistake 50 kilowatts is that's that's a pretty big market station but uh i think there's 100,000 watts to, like that's and you do you know what voltage is that at? Is that 480? That's, yeah, or is 480 that, yeah. volts um, and then uh, uh, 100 amps usually. That is a lot of juice. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's not... It's not something you're going to find in your house reason, at all. The reason they spec this, you know, they, you know, in the the press materials, you know, they talked about 50 kilowatt charging is because most of the the DC fast chargers that are out there today that aren't Tesla superchargers are 50 kilowatt chargers. But, so it's it's not just Jaguar trying to get a, a you know a number that looks palatable. Yeah, I mean this this is the standard. I mean if you go out, you know, um, there's there's actually a network of DC fast chargers that have been built on the East Coast and the West Coast and you know across some corridors across the U.S. Um, that use the standard uh, SAE charging connector, combo charging connector, um, that everybody but Tesla uses. Uh, <laughs> and so those, the, most of those that are out 
in in the field now are 50 kilowatt chargers um, and we're going to start seeing some hundred start seeing 100 kilowatt chargers coming out in the next couple of years and i don't know if you remember the uh, porsche mission e concept that they showed last year um, that was actually uh, they were using 200 kilowatt charging for that uh, and so you know they've developed a 200 kilowatt dc charging system for that which would go even faster my guess is by the time the ipace uh, goes into production in 2018 it will probably have it will probably have support for at least 100 kilowatt charging and maybe 200 kilowatt charging. That, yeah, I mean it's we're getting there and we're building out the infrastructure and the more of these vehicles that we get on the market, the more they're just going to be supported by charging infrastructure in in different places. Um, you know, and, and I think that for for Jaguar, they've just they just come out with their first. You know, SUV crossover, whatever you want to call it, uh, making that an EV, you know, making that form factor an EV, that's such a smart move in terms of saleability, you know, versus uh, some, you know, an XF or an XE uh, that just doesn't have the the appeal of the, you know, useful, you know, just just the general overall, you know, shape and size. Um, you know, sedans are just not selling as much. Um, so the, it's a very smart move, and it, at the same time, it almost feels anathema to, to Jaguar as well. You know, like Jaguars have always been about you know that racing heritage, and I, you know I know there's there's electric race series and stuff like yeah, that. It Jag- just Jaguar it feels weird. The Formula E next year, uh, yeah. So you know it, it's not you know it, compared to traditional Jaguar, it's it certainly is anathema. But you know this is the way everybody has to go now, and. Um, it's just the the reality of the situation. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm I'm really I can't wait to actually drive one because I, I mean it, it's going to be great. You know, the the they're all going to every every EV I drive. I just I like it because it doesn't have that weird powertrain handoff. It it uh, it doesn't. You know, you don't have to stop and fill it up, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can plug it in. Um, so as we just continue to see more of this stuff, like it's going to get better and better. I wonder, I do wonder what it means for the, the, you know, the future of, of internal combustion and, and gas engines and, you know, whether fuel at a certain point demand tails off. And so fuel actually starts to creep up and be more expensive. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, uh, but we're going to, we're going to see some reckoning with, you know, you get a bunch of these things on the grid too. What does our grid do? Um, these are all, you know, big picture questions, I understand. So, right. And, you know, that's where, you know, things like, uh, local solar charging can definitely help. Um, you know, you've got more and more people installing solar on their homes. Uh, so they're, they're not relying on the grid for the energy to charge their EVs. Uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's kind of the whole strategy behind, you know, Tesla buying, uh, solar city, which they, they got approval for that deal this week. Uh, they, you know, they want to have a complete vertical integration of being able to provide their customers with solar uh, installations to power their electric vehicles um, and you know, just integrate everything together and, and also provide um, home energy storage to store some of that excess solar that you get during the day and be able to use it at night when the sun is on the other side of the planet. Uh, and I think you know, I, I personally, you know, uh, from a business standpoint, I'm not convinced that uh, combining Solar City and Tesla was necessarily a good idea. I mean, I think you can you can provide that sort of integration through partnerships, you know, between different companies, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, that's that's business. We don't need business to get side. into that here. Uh, but let's keep let's keep talking about Tesla. Um, 
because the, you actually one of the topics you shared was a German study that uh, Tesla owners think autopilot is actually better than it really is, which is, it doesn't seem to be a surprise um, because the average car buyer doesn't know a lot uh, about how their car operates. The, yeah, so this this is this is a survey that Tesla commissioned among uh, their German customers. Um, following a uh, request from the uh, German regulators for Tesla to stop using the term autopilot for right, they call it autopilot. So, like, what did you expect was going to happen? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the re- you know the the reality is that you know people are familiar with the term autopilot you know from aircraft, and they assume that autopilot means that it can fly the plane on its own. Uh, but the reality is that um, autopilot is not semi is not autonomous flying. You know, basically all autopilot does it's it's pretty much akin to the cruise control that you have on your car today. That you know you set it at a certain speed and altitude, and it just tries to maintain that. That's that's all that most autopilot in aircraft does. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like if you the nautical idea would be like an auto helm, right? Yeah. Like it it follows the course that you have plotted. But you, you still got to watch it. You don't want to run into the reef. Exactly. <laughs> so um, in response to the, the request from the German regulators, Tesla commissioned a survey of 675 of their owners in Germany. Uh, you know, and they asked things like, have you ever used autopilot? 99% said yes. Are you familiar with the warnings that Tesla provides about how autopilot is to be properly used? 98% said yes. Um, the very last question was the one that concerned me the most. Um, has the name autopilot caused you to believe the car is fully autonomous, meaning it does not require the driver to be supervising the car? 7% of owners responded um, yes to that question. So that means, you know, you know, 93%, you know, said no. So, that, you know, they, they realize it's not fully autonomous. 7% said yes. So, you know, I, I did a little number crunching and, Com- compared that to the U.S. market, for example, and you know, keep in mind that you know Tesla owners, because these you know the Model S and Model X are expensive cars, so these are more affluent customers that are going to tend, you know, in general, to be better educated and more informed. Um, and then you know, Tesla owners as a whole are probably, you know, ge- or German uh, owners as a whole are more are going to be more inclined to be aware of what cars can and cannot do, uh, just because you know the driver education system in Germany is much more stringent than it is here in the U.S. Uh, I mean, here, basically, if you have a pulse and you know how to start the engine and, and occasionally hit the brake pedal, um, you can right. pretty much get a driver's license. Right. You get a license. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, 7% of German Tesla owners said they thought that this thing was fully autonomous. Now, if you apply that, you know, disregarding the other things, if you just apply that straight to the, the U.S. Uh, driver population, you know, from 2014, there were 214 million licensed drivers in the United States. 7% of that, and it's probably a lot higher if you ask, you know, a, a represent, representative population of American drivers. But yeah, I mean, maybe, how about, how we, we could just double people. it. Yeah. It's how many? Well, it's 15 million people. 15 million people. So, and if we were to say, you know, Americans, even affluent Americans, my totally unscientific uh, sampling of people I know who fit the Tesla buyer mode actually... Uh, know less yeah. <laughs> about how anything works other than like what they might have their PhD and they, they, you know, they have trouble surviving otherwise. So, um, so just for, for comparison, you know, 15 million people, you know, assume 15 million people, American drivers think that the Tesla autopilot is fully autonomous. That's a lot of people. In that same year, 2014, there were 6 million, um, accidents, crashes 
car crashes. Right, and is that so? That's 2014. That's actually lower, right? Yeah, it's, like been, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone up. I mean, that's the last year that we have the full numbers for posted in the uh, the FARS database, which is the Fatality Accident Reporting System that uh, the Department of Transportation maintains. The the 2015 numbers will probably be going in there pretty soon. Uh, as they finish parsing everything. Um, but, you know, for 2014, 6 million accidents. Um, we have 15 million people, you know, presumably who think that it's fully autonomous. And, you know, every, everybody likes to throw out the statistic that, you know, 93, 94% of accidents are caused by human error. But, you know, when you look at the fact that, you know, Americans, you know, in 2014 drove almost 3.1 trillion miles, 3.1 trillion with a T miles. And, you know, you only had 6 million accidents and 33,000 roughly fatalities that year. Um, the, the reality is that the vast majority of time, drivers are not making errors that lead to accidents or fatalities. So, yes, most of the accidents were caused by human error, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time, drivers were not making errors that led to accidents. So, um, the, you know, the these are kind of they seem kind of contradictory but they're not you know so it's only a very tiny proportion of all the driving that actually results in accidents right well you know the safest car is one that doesn't hit stuff and i mean it's the reason why you can still you know you can go out and you can you can drive a car that was built in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s and you know if you don't crash it you're good yeah <laughs> you know so you know the 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 thing to keep in mind is that uh, you know, yes, most Tesla drivers don't think it's autonomous, but there's enough that this could be a serious problem. You know, if you applied this technology across the entire fleet without educating people, and that's so, yeah. that's the the key of what I wrote in, in this Forbes uh, article is it's it we really need to educate drivers about what these systems really can and cannot do. Uh, right, like that. That's that's like there's a wetware problem, you know, and it, yeah. it like it reminds me of. Not that I was really there for it, um, but the the you know we're pushing the technology almost too far too fast into the mainstream. Kind of like what happened um, when fuel injection started to be widely introduced or more widely introduced. Uh, early systems weren't as robust and reliable as they eventually became, um, and service providers uh, weren't properly trained, and you know so there was an understanding problem. You know there's, there's multiple you know instances of like oh we introduced this car like the 82 imperial was introduced to fuel injection system had issues so the the fix was to call it back and put carburetors on it like like that's that's almost the point we're at here where we've got the system it's it's more refined than that but like not everybody understands it yet and there's still that inertia and yet we we continue to put this stuff out in the market yeah i mean yeah and the problem here is the consequences of you know i mean if fuel injection system fails then you know car gets stranded okay it's it's annoying but it's generally not going to lead to an accident but if these systems fail because the drivers were were doing we're expecting them to do things that they're not capable of doing then the the potential consequences are much higher or much much more serious and so you know the key to all of this is making sure that we educate drivers and that's one of the things that one of the elements that was in the the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration guidelines that they published a couple of months ago for autonomous vehicles that um, 
manufacturer need, need to figure out how they're going to educate consumers about the technology. Um, you know, there's also um, the National Safety Council has a program called uh, My Car Does What, uh, where they're they're producing materials to try to educate drivers about driver assistance systems that are in the market today, what they can and can't do. And uh, at MIT, uh, Professor Brian Reamer is running uh, the Advanced Vehicle Technology Consortium, where they're studying these technologies, uh, and they've got a, a number of different vehicles. They've got a couple of Teslas, a couple of Volvos with uh, pilot assist, uh, and some um, Land Rover Evokes uh, with various driver assist systems. And they're, you know, they've got them all instrumented and with cameras, and and they're looking at and having drivers go out and, and drive these things and looking at how they're responding to these various technologies to try and figure out how can we how can we better design the interfaces the human machine interface to inform the drivers about what's going on how do we keep them engaged and um, how you know how do we manage these systems to deal with that human element yeah and like for me i i don't want the human element to be removed from it you know that and that's one possible solution is you know at a certain point Let's let's take the human stuff out of it. And there's, uh, I'm on the side of the debate where you know driving is the most complex thing I do on a daily basis. Like I actually enjoy the the engagement of it. I, I'm not buying the promise of like oh sit there and read the paper or the more cynical side of me says well sit there and consume media in some way. Watch crap on your phone and so we can serve you advertising. Like, it, enough. Like I want to drive <laughs> when I'm driving, even if I'm in a traffic jam. I. I want to drive, and uh, you know that's that's against so like completely opposite of the the one of the more elegant solutions of you know fixing the human problem with driving is like just remove the humans. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm not you know particularly fond of driving in, in heavy traffic, you know, so I. You know, uh, yeah, I mean nobody is. Scenarios but... I would just as soon hand it over if I knew I had a reliable system that could that could deal with it. Uh, and, you know, that's why, you know, when I've got a vehicle that has adaptive cruise control, if I'm in traffic, I will use that in traffic, you know, but I also make sure that I monitor it closely. Right. And it's, that's the thing. Like, you pay attention still. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not the typical driver. I mean, as, as someone, you know, who's an engineer, you know, by training and an analyst by trade today, you know, and studying these technologies, you know. I'm far more aware than the typical consumer of, of what the capabilities of these vehicles are and their limitations. So, you know, other, you know, other people that don't have that knowledge, um, they, you know, they need to be made aware of what these vehicles are really capable of. And I don't think it helps to use terminology that implies that there's some capability there that, that it's not, that doesn't exist. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great marketing term for sure. Uh, you know, calling it autopilot, everybody understands that car drives itself to some degree. Um, that's nice. Under, under very specific circumstances. Right. Um, and There's that's a lot of circumstances where it can't drive itself. That, that's kind of the issue. Um, and, and a lot of places in the country where uh, you can start off just fine, but run into trouble. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about autonomous cruise and that stuff. Once those, those sensors up front ice up, you get a lot of cars, you get no cruise. Yeah. Um, you know, because it it, can't, it knows that it can't can't you know, detect anything in front of it, and you know some cars like Toyotas. A lot of the Toyotas will allow you to switch between um, uh, the the autonomous cruise and the the more normal like just speed based cruise, and and some Chryslers do as well. Yeah, most uh, most cars do that. But you know there are some that, that don't. <laughs> you know, I've had. And that's. I mean, I've been in that situation, you know, driving, you know, the morning after a snowfall, um, you know, in you know morning rush hour traffic that was, you know, going, 
you know, varying speeds and using the uh, using the adaptive cruise control. And after about it was working great and for about 15 minutes, and then after that, the sensor, the radar sensor on the front of the car was just covered up with slush, and yep. it threw up a warning saying, you know, uh, disabling the adaptive cruise control. Please stop and clean off the radar sensor. Yeah, well, and also that see, right, and that's your your um, emergency braking and your, you know, all of that stuff is, is driven off that sensor. So, and, that, and that's a fundamental problem with what Tesla has done with their, even their second generation autopilot. You know, they, they've added, you know, they've gone from one camera to eight cameras around the car. Um, and, you know, they've uh, had, they've got the ultrasonic sensors and the radar, but there's no mechanism on there to actually keep those sensors clean. And so if you're driving in those kinds of conditions, that, you know, that will, you know, after a few minutes, those sensors are going to be blind. And so that car, that system will never, no matter what Elon Musk says, uh, the second generation autopilot can never be a level five autonomous system that is capable of autonomous driving under all conditions because they have no no means to keep those sensors clean. Yeah, well, and I mean, sensor-based stuff can only do so much. It, the, the real solution there is, is likely to be something that combines the sensors with V2V and uh, V2I and just all of those different technologies. And that's going to take a while. You know, so all these predictions of autonomous, full, you know, self-driving cars in two or three years, I, I think they're kind of full. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're going to see some limited um, deployments of those, you know, of level four autonomous vehicles in condition in places where the conditions allow it in the early 2020s. But, you know, it's going to be at least the late 2020s and beyond before um, you start to see them, you know, much more widely available, uh, you know, and even, you know, even some folks, some folks from Silicon Valley that I talked to this week in LA, you know, agreed with that, you know, they, they're starting to get a much more realistic view of, you know, when these systems will really be capable of being available more broadly. I mean, I love, I love what the hubris has done though. It's, it's certainly oh, moved yeah, the industry along. <laughs> um, it's also, you know, interesting to watch them sort of make that that shift like oh this is this is a lot harder than we thought you know, oh, the automakers aren't complete idiots hmm. yeah, the, the threshold for a minimal minimally viable product um in cars is a lot different than it is when you're making a a photo app yeah for sure um well let's get back to enthusiast cars though too uh, let's wrap up with the the mazda cx-5 finally gets a diesel um which i mean i love mazda for how out of step with convention they are i mean they they pay attention to to pleasing drivers and this is sort of just another level of that like they're bringing a diesel to market in the u.s now <laughs> yeah uh you know it's interesting you know the, mazda has been trying to bring a diesel to the u.s market for several years and you'd probably be surprised to learn that actually um right now in japan a market that has not traditionally been known as a, a strong diesel market um 70 of mazda's sales in the japanese domestic market are now diesel powered yeah how do they explain that uh, because they're one of the only brands that does it, and you know they're able to get really good fuel economy with their with their diesels. Um, so they've got they've got a you know a relatively unique proposition in the Japanese market. Uh, so you know they've they've had some success there with that, and they've been trying to bring it here, and you know they they've been running into some of the same issues that other manufacturers have with trying to meet uh, U.S. emission standards without um, without doing anything inappropriate, let's say, um, or violating <laughs> any laws. Right, uh, right. Know, I mean, they, they initially promised the diesel about three years ago in the in the current generation CX-5 and also in the Mazda 6, and they've delayed it several times now. Um, for the time being, they um, 
they have shelved plans to put the diesel, their 2.2 liter four cylinder diesel into the six, uh, but they are going to be putting it into the new generation, the second generation CX-5 uh, from uh, in the second half of 2017. Uh, they've shifted their strategy. Originally, they were trying to do it with a Knox trap, similar to what Volkswagen was doing. Uh, they're now using uh, a, a urea injection system, a selective catalytic reduction system, um, right. similar to what pretty much everyone else is doing uh, for the CX-5. And the you know the explanation I got from uh, Mazda officials this week was that you know the CX-5 you know is a crossover. It's more of a lifestyle vehicle. Um, the the diesel is a good fit for that type of vehicle you know where people are looking for good drivability lots of torque um you know and and also trying to get good better fuel efficiency and you know actually they're not the only ones in that segment you know bringing out a diesel in that in that mainstream compact crossover segment uh you know, a few a few weeks back uh gm announced that they're putting uh, a diesel in the the redesigned 2018 equinox as well so both of these crossovers these compact crossovers are coming to market you know around the same time next year and they will each have diesel engines so it's going to be real interesting to watch um you know how how those are accepted in the marketplace yeah well it's it's going to be difficult for them i mean volkswagen has managed to tarnish the reputation of of diesel uh diesel's going to cost a bit more and it's it's pretty well under fire, not necessarily just because of Volkswagen either. Um, you know, pickups and large trucks haven't been all rainbows and unicorns with diesel either. You know, there's lots of expensive issues with with uh, you know DEF and particulate traps and SCR. Like the the regen can burn stuff up sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and they're not cheap to fix, and they're not as uh, dead nuts reliable as diesels once were. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, they've definitely gotten more complex than they used to be, and that you know that makes it tougher to to maintain that level of reliability and durability. Although you know, diesel truck buyers you know really love them. You know, for for trucks, they're they're a great application for trucks. And you know, we've I'm sure you know we've all seen the uh, spy photos of um, upcoming F-150s with diesel engines in them. You know. Ford has yet to announce it. Maybe we may see an announcement at the uh, Detroit Auto Show in January um, that uh, the 2018 F-150s will have an optional 3-liter diesel V6, which is the same engine that's uh, currently used by uh, Land Rover in the Range Rover and uh, and also I think uh, Jag. They offer it in the XJ, maybe. Um, maybe it's just in the Range Rovers. Um, but it's no, it's it's an engine may. that's actually built by Ford. Um, and uh, used by Land Rover, and that en- that engine will be going into the 2018 F-150. How necessary is that? Like when you get that kind of engine in in a you know, half ton pickup, like. Um, I think you know to they, they've pretty much maxed out what they can get um, with their current, with their EcoBoost engines in terms of fuel economy, um, you know, and if they want to keep pumping that up in order to meet, uh, new fuel economy standards, new cafe standards. Well, I don't think they need to worry about that anymore. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for, for now, at least, you know, it uh, is the, you know, they've got a, they've got a plan as if yeah, that's no. still going to be in place, you know, so, um, you know, anything can happen there. Um, you know, in all likelihood it will get rolled back, but, but even if it gets rolled back to some degree or slowed down, um, they do still have to, um, keep increasing the fuel economy. And so, you know, that's that's one approach they can take. They're also developing hybrid systems for the trucks, 
Um, so, you know, we'll see a number of different solutions. And same thing at Mazda, you know, we're going to start seeing um, electric electrified Mazdas in the coming years as well, you know, between now and 2020. Um, so there, everybody's looking at all possible solutions to the problem. Yeah, well, and if there's one vehicle that could actually use the extra torque, I, I feel like it's the CX-5. Like that's, it's such a good vehicle to drive, um, and, and especially with the, the two-liter and the manual transmission. Like that's, it's so much fun. But you still feel like it's, it's got okay horsepower when you, you you get on it and, and let it wind up the tack. But the off-the-line torque is not. I don't think it's what most people are accustomed to. Right, um, and that's exactly why Mazda is doing the diesel in that particular vehicle first, uh, because it, it's a good fit for that type of vehicle. Yeah, and you know they could get around it too with a, just a turbocharged you know, gas four cylinder. But again, you know, economy is going to take a hit. So I, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it's I'm sure it's going to be delightful. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll hold our breath until it gets here, and we'll, we'll drive it and and see what it's like. It, it there was one quote from Mazda that was funny though, where uh, their guy said, "You know, Mazdas are not commodities and never will be, um, except for their kind of uh, actual commodity goods because they're an automobile." So. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, what what he was getting at there is that he he doesn't they don't want um, Mazdas to be seen as just completely interchangeable with any other vehicle in the segment you know they 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 want consumers to see them as something a little bit special you know based on the design their driving dynamics um, you know their their interior appointments so they're they're trying to make them feel a little more premium than the competitors you know while still providing good value yeah i think they definitely do that uh for sure um there, there are darling as uh, auto writers, and hopefully everybody else actually listens to us and goes and checks out Mazda so that they are uh, continuing their success because they're an independent automaker now, and it's it's yeah, difficult in this. They're no longer under the umbrella of one of the big guys. You know, I mean, Ford divested their their stake in Mazda back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, um, and so they're they're on their own, and they're you know they're doing some really impressive work you know from the mx5 miata all the way up to the new cx9 uh which we'll talk about next week um there's there's a lot to like there all right well so we've teed up next week we've gotten you know we talked about infotainment we're gonna we talk about the cx9 um we we haven't had any questions at our uh wheelbearingscast at gmail.com email but um we've gotten some feedback on itunes one didn't we we did yeah. Well, all right. Uh, yeah, uh, and we'll 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 put this one in next week because we had a lot to talk about this week. Uh, but we we did ha- we did get uh, an email uh, earlier today actually um, about uh, visibility, and we'll we'll put that in the queue for next week. And if anybody else has any uh, comments or questions that uh, you'd like us to address or uh, topics, um, you can reach us at wheelbearingscast at gmail dot com. Uh, you can also use the form on the website at wheelbearingsmedia where you can find the the uh, the podcast and also links to where you can subscribe uh, using uh, iTunes or Google Play or Pocket Casts uh, or TuneIn Radio. Um, and you know, if you uh, happen to use iTunes uh, in particular, you know, feel free to go in and uh, give us a rating review if you like. You know, if you like the show. Yeah, I do. I do want to point out. I do because we did get a couple of ratings, and thank you very much for that. I do want to point out how instrumental you were in setting it all up because people have said, "Oh, great job, Dan. I'm, thank you." <laughs> um, but but Sam did all the hard work, so. <laughs> Yeah, you do all the editing and actually putting the file together. So, 
we've we've balanced off the workload but uh it's it's very much a, a joint effort um so uh yeah and you know we're gonna go but we're gonna play the the interview uh with um Ali Vahabzadeh, right. who is the CEO of Chariot, uh, which if you've been in the San Francisco area in the last uh, year or so, you've probably seen uh, these blue Ford Transit vans running around, especially around downtown San Francisco. Um, they're, they're called Chariots. And uh, you can, if you listen to the interview with Ali, uh, they, Chariot was just purchased by uh, Ford Smart Mobility Division a little more than a month ago. And I had a chance to sit down with Ollie this week in, in Los Angeles and learn all about what Chariot is, what their strategy is, what they're trying to do. Uh, so give it a listen. Uh, I think uh, you'll find it uh, informative. And, and hopefully if you're in one of the areas, they're now in Austin as well, Austin, Texas. Um, you know, of course they're in Austin. Let us know yeah. what you think of the service. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, if you're, if you're in that area, please uh, let us know what it's like. Um, so, all right. Well, good. We'll we'll go. This is episode three. Uh, so, excellent. And we'll see everybody for episode four and uh, enjoy the interview. All right. Bye-bye. Starting uh, with Chariot, um, recently purchased by Ford. Got, you started it uh, a couple of years ago uh, in San Francisco. Tell me a little bit, what is Chariot? What, uh, what do you, what's the company doing? Sure. So Chariot is a network of crowdsourced commuter routes, which are fast, reliable, comfortable, and affordable way to get from your uh, residential neighborhood to work districts. Uh, And we started in 2014 in San Francisco, and we've recently expanded to our second market, Austin, Texas. And so we're using 14-passenger vans to commute people and uh, during commuter hours, 6 to 10 in the morning, 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, in the evenings. And uh, these are uh, typically uh, $4 rides where uh, our customers are also able to use their commuter benefits to purchase their passes with pre-tax, uh, uh, pre-tax dollars. By crowdsourcing, I mean our customers, our future customers, come on to our website or download our app they provide us their commute from and commute to address, usually their home and work address. And based on collecting thousands of these data points uh, a day, um, we're essentially having a popularity contest of where Chariot is going to launch its next routes. And uh, so it's a very novel, innovative way of having the public tell us where they need more commuting uh, capacity. And uh, so we're never sitting around a table and wondering where we should launch our next route. Uh, our future users are telling us directly. Yeah, so, you know, at, at its core, it's, you know, much like a, a transit bus service, a traditional transit bus service, <coughs> you know, and, you know, mixed with, you know, uh, kind of a jitney service. And you've talked, you mentioned, you know, the dollar, dollar vans uh, in New York and, you know, other similar kinds of services in other places around the world. <coughs> And then layering on top of that, you know, taking tech, harnessing technology to increase the flexibility and make it more useful, more practical for riders, and and also um, you know help with your your business as well at the same time. Can you talk a little bit more about that layering and how you're harnessing the technology to to make transit more practical for consumers. Sure. So uh, at the at its base, we are asking people again, hey, where uh, where do you want to get picked up and where do you want to get dropped off? 
And by using that data, we, uh, our algorithm creates a route, and it actually produces pickup and drop-off stops. And we typically have about two-thirds less stops than a, than a comparable bus route. And by that, uh, as, a, as a consequence of that, our routes are typically 50% faster than a, than a comparable um, ma a public mass transit route. And so we're able to crowdsource uh, not just where people want to go from and to, but really what the shape of that route is, or where, are the, where are the stops. So that's one application of technology. The second application of technology is uh, people are downloading our app and are able to reserve a seat on a particular chariot. And our chariots in the morning and in the evening, you open up the app and you, uh, you tell us where you're going from and going to, and we have your preferences already in there. And uh, we provide you a menu, a live menu of uh, chariots available to book based on ETA. And uh, most of the time there's availability on the chariot to book a seat, and then you proceed to the pickup stop and you wait for the chariot to arrive, and you have live tracking on the app so that you can see where, uh, where the vehicle is and um, you also get to know who your driver is for that morning. And once you jump on, and, and once the chariot arrives, the app turns into basically a boarding pass which you show to the driver. And the driver has an iPad facing them with the same trip codes or matching trip code on the boarding pass and on the iPad and you're on your way. And uh, as you're on your way, you get an ETA to your de destination. And as you approach your drop-off stop, the app actually uh, push notifies you that, uh, hey, Sam, we're about to uh, uh, get close to uh, you know, the uh, Los Angeles Convention Center. It's time your stop is next. And so right then and there, you have a, a transit experience that is uh, fast, affordable, convenient, and really forward-looking, and we expect Chariot to be the, the, the mode of, of transit for commuters for a long time coming. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, you have the convenience of the smartphone integration, so you don't have to fumble for exact change, you know, yeah. getting on a bus or, you know, trying to find your your, tran your transit pass or whatever you might be using. Um, you've, you always know you have a seat. Yeah, you know, um, and you know it's it's always going to be clean. So there's a lot of advantages to that, and it seems like you know as part of a, a larger multimodal mobility ecosystem, uh, you know it it makes a lot of sense to be one of those components within that. For system. sure. So a lot of uh, some of our customers actually bike to the chariot stop, and some of our chariots have uh, bike racks. You could throw your bike on there and and use chariot to commute downtown. Uh, one in five of our customers are taking the service to get to a transit hub, uh, like a like a train or a ferry or a bus terminal. So they're actually using Chariot as a first and last mile solution. Those same people, when we survey them, would have previously were actually driving um, for both their first mile and the trunk the trunk line uh, because there were. Probably no reliable or um, frequent ways to get to that trunk line. So we're really proud that not only are we creating, have we created a service that uh, fulfills a lot of people's commutes. It's actually for at least 20% of our customers is feeding the public mass transit system customers, which they may not have had in the past.
Right. Yeah. And, and uh, the triple uh, the triple win there is that we're taking cars off the street. Yeah. So these are 14 passenger uh, uh, Ford Transit wagons. So theoretically, we could be taking 14 uh, cars off the street with each one of these chariots. Yeah. And you've got you've got more more density of passengers, you know, within a given amount of space on the road because obviously one of the inherent issues with congestion, you know, you, you know, in, in an existing city, you can't continue to expand the Correct. road infrastructure, yeah. but if you've got more people living in the city, somehow you have to figure out a way to accommodate them, and so services like this as part of this larger ecosystem seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we, I was just at a, a venue in the Bay Area, and they have a, a one-year exclusive with a ride-sharing company that uses passenger cars. A lot of uh, fans of this venue go use the ride-sharing service uh, to get to the venue for game time. But the venue operator really doesn't like how the service is playing out and is not going to be extending that um, arrangement because uh, it just creates another type of havoc where the loading zones are, you know, one one driver for one passenger, that's really not solving any issues. Uh, when you have a larger factor vehicle like the 14-passenger van, you really do begin to make a dent into um, taking cars off the street and, and beginning to maximize efficiency. It's also, I mean, of course it's not as big as a 60-person bus, but the neat thing about the 14-passenger van is that it doesn't take up too much space. It doesn't need red curb uh, loading zones where it gives, you, it gives you a degree of flexibility. It does, that, especially for routes where you don't have enough density, enough, tra enough passenger density to fill, you know, a 40 foot or a 60 foot yeah. bus. You know, something. Yeah, like and, and we're not. We don't have to use uh, bus stops of the municipality, which is always a, a, a sensitive issue. Um, and we're not creating a ton of noise and pollution in residential neighborhoods, which we go through. It's just like driving a car through the neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to big coach buses. So uh, the aesthetic is really pleasing as well. And um, talk a little bit about um, serving uh, transit deserts, as you called them previously. Yeah, I'll give you a, uh, <clears throat> I'll give you an example, which we're really proud of because it served a community and a set of users that weren't typical chariot customers. And, and that is uh, the hospitality community up in the Fisherman's Wharf District of San Francisco. Um, they rely very heavily on hourly workers coming from far outside the city. And they're taking, um, and these workers are typically taking Okay. These workers are typically taking commuter rail from far outside the city to get into the city. But once they get to downtown San Francisco, <clears throat> they had no way of getting up to Fisherman's Wharf, which is clearly a transit desert <clears throat> for, for whatever reason. Predates, certainly predates us being there. And uh, the business owners of the Fisherman of Pier 39 and Alcatraz and and those Ghirardelli Square and those businesses got together and crowdsourced the chariot route. And they got their employees to sign up. And not only did they sign up, they actually subsidized the chariot service from downtown San Francisco to Fisherman's Wharf as this last mile solution. And uh, that was an awesome example of the business community coming together, 
addressing a very big need of their employees, subsidizing them, and also creating, helping create a public good uh, for other people who don't work there. Um, and uh, on top of that, a lot of these hourly workers didn't have smartphones, and they didn't have uh, or data plans on their smartphones. So we had to hack together an interesting uh, paper-based or uh, non-digital solution for for those workers so that they could be reliable riders for us. So, um, you know, in, in that one episode, we did a couple of cool things there that um, we expect to do a lot more of in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure we've, we've all heard about, uh, you know, some of the big tech companies uh, further down the, the, the Bay Peninsula, you know, that have fleets of buses, you know, that go up to San Francisco and transport their employees, you know, to places like Mountain View and Cupertino and Sunnyvale and elsewhere. Um, and there's, you know, there's been complaints from people in the city about, about those buses. But um, obviously, for smaller businesses, you know, in, you know, in some places in San Francisco and and in every other city, you know, it would be it can be very beneficial to them to have a solution that helps their employees get to work on time yes. economically. Yep. Um, you know, but they don't have the scale to to do something like you know, like uh, yeah, so, a, a big bus. So we uh, we have an enterprise product that we launched several months ago. As a result of our B2C product, our customers walking into their offices in the morning and uh, approaching their HR or benefits or perks people and saying, hey, you know, forget the yoga class. I take this thing called Chariot twice a day, four or five times a week, uh, because it's uh, an optimal solution for my commute. I'm happy with it. Is there any way the company can subsidize it? So we started receiving a bunch of inbound requests from companies asking how uh, they can pay for Chariot on behalf of their employees or create these custom routes. So very quickly, we became this Google bus alternative for the other 99% of the companies that are not called Google, Facebook, and Apple, mm -hmm. uh, but, but wanted to provide this type of perk for their employees. And make no mistake, this isn't out of the generosity of a lot of their hearts. They're very good people, but there are three core th reasons why companies are using a chariot solution for their employees. Number one is retention. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is recruiting. So, you know, you've, you're a company and you've outgrown your uh, San Francisco office or your urban office, and now you got to go to the suburbs and... Uh, relocate to a big office park because it's uh, more cost efficient, you've got to figure out a way to recruit people, especially young people from the city, to come to those office parks, especially when they don't own a car. Um, and then you've got to figure out how to retain them. And the third thing is productivity. So you're probably not very product pr productive driving in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic on the 101 at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, our enterprise chariots have Wi-Fi on board. Uh, they have bike racks so you can bike to the stop. And people get a lot of work done on these things. And uh, that makes employers very happy. And so all of a sudden, instead of wasting two to three hours of your day, you're actually putting it to good use 
and uh, either working online or having a much more pleasurable experience than sitting in back-to-back traffic, uh, bumper-to-bumper traffic. Yeah, and you know, now that you're part of the Ford family uh, of businesses, uh, you know, Ford you know, has been developing their dynamic shuttle service around the Dearborn area for a while now uh, for their, you know, for their campus there to get employees around, and you know, they, you know, they're they're using transit vans with Wi-Fi and power. Are um, are you, you know, are you and the, the folks behind the dynamic shuttle? Uh, working together, sharing ideas, and, and uh, building on the, the technology from from both sides, and and also, um, you know, based on on what they're doing, what they've been doing, uh, and you know, you've you've already added uh, your enterprise service. Are you looking at other tiers of service? Um, you know, maybe for a more premium ride for yeah. certain types of applications, things like that. Yeah. So they've uh, Ford and. The folks in Dearborn have been working on this problem for a while, and so they certainly have a set of technology which um, we have begun to take a look at and understand how we can uh, phase it into our business. We have a, another set of technology as well, um, which we're continuing to use. So it's all additive, and it's all exciting that we've actually been purchased by a company that can not only provide us uh, vehicles, um, but also they know what the problem set is because they've tackled it over the last few years. And then um, your, uh, your 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 other point was just about um, offering different tiers yes, of service yes, you yes. Know, for for different applications. So beyond enterprise, something that has been very popular with Chariot is beyond the commuting use case is now. Um, events and charters. So people are using Chariot to now um, go on weekend excursions, go to the beach, go to the uh, ball game, go to the concert, uh, go to the festival. And that also makes us proud because we know we're taking potentially drunk drivers off the road. And we're creating this experience on this 14-passenger van where is group travel and, and uh, small to medium-sized groups of people and friends and family can really enjoy the service now seven days a week. And that's actually become 30% of our business. So, um, uh, you know, we think that events, and we're going to soon rebrand it as, uh, as another name and have a whole other set of experiences on the Chariot app, is going to be a uh, a really important driver for us, especially because sometimes uh, a, a new Chariot user's first experience is not with the commuter product, but it's actually over the weekend because their friend is the commuter. She organizes a Chariot mm-hmm. over the weekend and invites a bunch of her friends who have never rode Chariot, and then guess what? Monday morning they start riding it for their commute. So it's also very good business in that we're cross-selling our, our services. I think there are a number of future use cases which we'll begin to uh, to address in 2017. Um, different groups of people um, that could be using Chariot. Um, I won't name them now because we're still in product development. But uh, at the end of the day, it's it's driving utilization. Uh, there's 24 hours in a day, and trying to figure out how to use that vehicle as much as, as possible and as in, in, in use cases which are safe, um, environmentally friendly, 
and are actually furthering the chariot brand. Yeah, I was just going to ask, that was my, going to be my, my next question about uh, utilization, uh, you know, different, because obviously, you know, for commuters, commuters tend to, you know, have peak periods of sure. use in a couple of different times of the day. Uh, you know, how, you know, how are you handling that, um, you know, in terms of, you know, deploying your vehicles during peak times versus off-peak times, you know, what are you, how are you using the vehicles, and, and also, um, you know, are have you, Look particularly for your enterprise customers. Have you talked to the enterprise customers about um, staggering their work hours? Um, you know, to you know work with them to to schedule their work hours so that they can they can everybody can get better utilization of the service for maybe a lower cost. Yeah, interesting. I think they're thinking about that uh, on their own to so as to minimize the pain of. Uh, commuting hours, uh, you know, Chariot, the enterprise product is uh, is very comfortable, but at the end of the day, it's physics, and you're still on the road, and mm-hmm. if there's traffic, there's traffic. We can't fly yet. Um, to address yeah. the peaks and troughs... That's 2017. Yeah. To address the peaks and troughs, uh, that's why we are continuing to develop products. Uh, so... So as to address, um, you know, uh, filling up that plane, filling up that hotel. Uh, you know, we, we have some similarities with those other industries. It's it's a utilization and an occupancy game. And uh, I think what you'll see in our next few products is we're going to be leveling out the demand curve. So instead of peaks and troughs, you have a constant level More of high utilization. Use. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, and... One last thing: How many how many vehicles do you have in operation now, and, and drivers? And you're in two cities right now. Yeah, so we're in San Francisco and Austin, Texas. <clears throat> we have 120 vehicles on the road, and we expect to be in another five cities in the next 12 months, with several several hundred more vehicles deployed across the country. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ollie. Thanks, Sam. Great conversation. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.